Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans under Written by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on this episode of Fan of History. Hello, Dan. Hello, Bernie. Nice to talk to you again today. This is going to be a great episode. I have uh, been waiting for this episode for such a long time. We have talked about Ashurbanipal in many episodes now, and we have mentioned the library, but this is the single one greatest achievement. Ashurbanipal brought the Assyrian Empire into its uh, biggest time. The, the Assyrian Empire was never as big as under Ashurbanipal, but this is a much greater achievement. Yes, for sure. I know you've really been talking about this since we started. I started doing this podcast with you. And so here we are, finally doing the episode on Library of Ashurbanipal. And just to put things in perspective, this is the biggest collection of texts before the Library of Alexandria. Hmm. So in all world history, before the Library of Alexandria, this is the biggest library. Yeah, amazing, really. It really um, it's a fascinating story. I think the listeners are really going to love it. I've been immersed in it for the past couple of months myself. Do you know the author H.E. Wells? Yes. He called the Library of Ashurbanipal, quote, the most precious source of historical material in the world, huh. end quote. If that's not hyperbole. No, it isn't. And uh, it is like the, the dream of an archaeologist to discover something like that. Oh, amazing. And it happened to Austri- Austin Henry Layard. Yes. One of those uh, British archaeologists stalking the world in the 19th century, taking everything. <laughs> and this guy was extremely successful. He had the time of his life. He discovered a lot of stuff about um, the Assyrians. And he excavated Nimrud and Nineveh. Yeah. Amazing cast of characters that was. That's a whole... The archaeology of, of how they found it is, is a great story as well which we'll get into a little bit too. Yeah, and remember that during the 18th century, people even thought that the Assyrians were fictional, yeah. that they didn't know anything about the Assyrians except for the parts in the Bible and those weird legends that the Greeks and the Romans had. Yeah, but I got to tell you, I find that a little funny because... In the Bible, the Assyrians are not like just sort of mentioned like Atlanteans or giants or something. I mean, the whole siege of Hez- of Jerusalem's a big story. I mean, you know, they named yeah. the King Sennacherib and everything. Yes. I think it's maybe sort of like the East versus West bias of the time, you know, where they the East was uh, not a big deal to the 
Westerners, and they were digging up things and looking from Greece and Romans and things like that. Now I'm getting into history in the Bible uh, stuff, and <laughs> we know a guy who's better than, <laughs> at that. He is. But I think the the uh, Bible was very questioned in the 18th century as well as uh, during the era of Enlightenment. That oh, the Bible is just a fairy tale. Yes. And and actually, this story goes along with it because when they were finding, you know, when they found the library, they were deciphering things. They were, in other words, they were showing things that oh, this was in the Bible, and now we found it in this library. Yeah. Okay. So Austin Henry Layard is in the royal palace of Sennacherib, mm-hmm. the southwest palace, in 1849, mm-hmm. and he discovers. A big library. Yeah. But it's like he's discovering a lot of stuff. He doesn't have time to handle it. It's like, whoa. Right. So, so much stuff going on. So three years later, Hormud Rassam, Layard's assistant, discovers another library mm-hmm. in the palace of Ashurbanipal. And they sort of mix yeah. up all the stuff they find <laughs> in these two libraries. So we don't know which text came from which library. Right, isn't that crazy? So, yeah, because, you know, it's probably all Sennacherib's known his luck. He always gets no credit. It's probably really the library of Sennacherib. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. (laughs) But I bet Ashurbanipal was using it. Yeah, yes. And um, so stuff reached Europe, and then it was like, oh, where did this come from? Hmm. Well, we'll all credit it. We'll credit it all to uh, the library of Ashurbanipal. Right. Okay, let's get into the stuff. We we talked so much about Ashurbanipal. Do we need to explain his background? Why he cares so much about texts? Well, I think we do. We do know that he cares about them because he writes, right? We we know that. Although, wasn't it funny that I don't? I think you watched it too. Irving Finkel said he's the. If you ever know Irving Finkel, he's a white-haired. A seriologist from the British Museum, and he says that he thinks the other kings could write, but we know Ashurbanipal was very proud of how much he could read and write, and he could read and write other languages and so on. It always struck me as a very weird thing that only one king could right. read and write. But uh, if another king could read and write, they were probably not that good and not as good at it as Ashurbanipal. Yeah, I think so. He mastered both both Akkadian and Sumerian, and of course cuneiform. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, I bet I wonder if some of the other kings could read, but the writing was is really what was Ashurbanipal was so proud of because he was such a good, he had such good handwriting and he could write so well. Yeah, I think that might be the difference. Mm -hmm. And uh, at some point. Ashurbanipal realized that the old systems of writing were being replaced by that fancy alphabet. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, you only need to know like 30 characters right. instead of thousands. And these old languages were being replaced by Aramean. So he realized that, wow, these thousands of years that have gone before me, all the knowledge, all the texts, they will be lost, and I must save them. It's me, Ashurbanipal, who must save all the texts of the world. Yeah, he does have a, um, mostly Assyrian kings, especially him, they'd have a sort of a superiority complex and a god complex, I would say. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so he sounds scribes into every region of the empire to collect all ancient texts they could find. He hired scholars and scribes to copy texts, mainly from Babylonian sources then, Mm -hmm. because they had a lot of texts. But then he instructed his armies to, like, find texts, take them, bring them to me. Right. And we know he did a lot of fighting, so there was a lot of opportunities for getting texts for the king. Yeah, that's a good point. They had. They found a note. I think they found a. They, I think they found it in Borsippa, though. But it was one of his. Um, it was a tablet, small, but it was sort of like an order saying, 
Um, to, you know, he would have given to his armies and his people that they would go to another library and say, you know, the king of Assyria, Shabanapal, king of the world demands your, you know, we want these texts. <laughs> you know? Yes, you can uh, either give the text to Ashurbanipal or uh, try to keep them from him. Yeah, exactly. Or we'll write it on your skin. <laughs> yes. Like, what, not while your skin is still attached to your body. I'll do a brief overview of the contents and then we'll go into details. Okay. So, the Royal Library consists of maybe 30,000 tablets and writing boards. And the majority of them are very damaged. They are fragmented. And uh, you can deduce from the fragments that the number of tablets that existed in the library at the time of destruction was close to 2,000 perhaps. And the number of writing boards were maybe 300. Most of the texts were legislation, foreign correspondence, engagements, aristocratic declarations and financial matters. And the sort of rest of the texts were divinations, omens, incantations and hymns to various gods, Mm. some medicine, astronomy and literature. But only 10 of the texts were rhythmic literary works such as epics and myths. Yeah. So very little fiction, but that, that is very representative of the ancient world before Ashurbanipal. Yeah, I think so. We do have the Epic of Gilgamesh. The best uh, record, the best copies of it come from uh, the library. Yeah, which is a great story, and we're going to actually do. I might, we're going to have a special episode just on that, so we won't get into. Oh, I love it. The details of the Epic of Gilgamesh, but that was a major find, obviously, in that library. Uh, did we talk about Hillary Clinton on the podcast? You mentioned it, and I at one time <laughs> I googled for you. Talk, tell us about that again. <laughs> So suddenly my uh, Epic of Gilgamesh in five minutes video that I made on the Fan of History YouTube channel, it became very popular. And apparently Hillary Clinton's emails had been published and there was a reference to the Epic of Gilgamesh. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I, don't, I haven't seen the reference itself, but it was some conspiracy theory that people were like, talking about the Epic of Gilgamesh being hostile to Hillary Clinton. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> they, people don't like Hillary Clinton. Some people really don't around here. <laughs> maybe they thought uh, Trump were uh, Enkidu or something like that. Yeah, it could be that. Or maybe Hillary Clinton is a lizard or she's a you know, Satan-worshipping, blood-drinking, you know. Which actually, that's part of the QAnon philosophy. I don't know if you realize that conspiracy that Hillary Clinton is, drinks the blood of children. Oh, that's bad. Yeah. Stop that, Hillary. Yeah. <laughs> Why? <laughs> <laughs> that's just crazy. Yeah. So it may yeah. be that the that the her her emails could have had something to do with Saddam Hussein, actually, because I kind of googled it, and 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 then in this book I recently got from. Oh, that's so funny! I got a book from my library. I was like, I need to go to the library. So I went to my library and I got a book on how they dug up. Gilgamesh in the library of Ashurbanipal. And so Saddam Hussein was a very big fan of uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. And he is actually uh, wrote some novels. So it's crazy. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So that could be somewhat too why they were, they were in the emails. The other great hits in the library is the Enuma Elis creation story. Mm-hmm. The myth of Adapa, the first man. And uh, a story known as the poor man of Nippur. Yeah, that's a good one. But uh, there's a lot of Babylonian texts, um, mainly in two different groups. Uh, literary compositions such as divinations, religious, lexical, medical, mathematical, and historical texts, as well as epic and myths on the one hand. And legal documents on the other hand. The Babylonians love their legal documents. Yeah. So we have 1,128 Babylonian tablets and fragments concerning legal documents, contracts, and administrative texts. So well-organized Babylonians. Yeah, I mean, that's what writing was for, right? Keeping track of all that kind of stuff. 
we probably won't have, if, if our civilization keeps going the way it is with our computers and everything online, we probably will have nothing. <laughs> if some, you know, if we have a, everything gets destroyed, because definitely rocks and I should say clay tablets are easier to save than floppy disks. You know about the long-term storage problem of nuclear waste? Yeah. Yeah, so they, they have to find a way to communicate to future civilizations that don't dig here. Oh, yeah, <laughs> right. Really bad stuff, but you can't use uh, writing. So you have to like find symbols that will be universal. So what they're, what they're actually doing is going back to ancient symbols and say, okay, we understand this, uh, or do we? <laughs> and we can use something like that. Wow, that's a good idea. I, I did read about it. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, the, so you can like, is uh, a, a, a skull, a skeleton skull and some bones, is that a symbol of death? For some kids, it's a symbol for pirates. Oh, right. So you can't be sure of any symbols, how they will be interpreted in the future. I guess pirates is the symbol of death, of being the symbol of pirates is still a symbol of like, stay away. Yeah, but pirates are like uh, something funny. That's true. Now they're like fun. At this point. That's true. There is, there is a lot of lexical text and sign lists in the library. That is basically f- interpretation notes. You can read really old symbols. So your skill scribes can't read 2,000-year-old symbols, but with these sign lists they can oh yeah like a dictionary you know like a encyclopedia that yes. kind of thing yep yeah of course that helped the translators pretty good it's like a rosetta stone of a sort so a lot of texts are in acadian in cuneiform script but uh, some many of the tablets are hard to discern where they came from many tablets are in neo-babylonian script and some are also in assyrian they are organized based on shape. Yeah. So if you have a tablet and it's four-sided, you know that that's a financial t- tablet. Right. If you have a round tablet, it's agricultural information. But we do have a lot of tablets in the library. And tablets were probably not that dominating. So there were a lot of text in the library that had not survived. Yeah. Probably a lot of was written and they just didn't make it. Yeah, they were written on wood, on wax tablets oh, yeah, that and too. stuff like that. Yeah. They didn't make it. And of course, the Phoenicians uh, and uh, Egyptians used a lot of papyrus. And some papyrus probably made it into the library as well. But that doesn't survive. No, especially the fire, because the fire burned up all that. But actually, you know, helped, helped the tablets last because it baked them even further. But the paper. That's amazing. It is. We're kind of spoiling the great event of 612 BC, but we have to talk about it yeah. when we come to the, the library. Because and I'm so surprised that the library actually survived. Because in the downfall of Nineveh in 612 BC, the Babylonians, the Scythians, the Medes, and everybody else were there and ravaged the city. They destroyed a lot of walls and houses and statues but somehow the library survived and there was a great fire that actually baked the clay cuneiform tablets yeah but then i think the the library must have been blocked or something because they didn't sack it yeah maybe all the walls fell on it and that kind of thing I bet they did. They said they definitely smashed the tablets, some of them. Irving Finkel was saying that he, he could, they could tell that some of them, the way they were broken, were, you know, they were smashed. And they did chip off Ashurbanipal's face, right, from a lot of the reliefs. Yes. I bet the Babylonians saw a value in the library, but the Scythian and the Medes, they probably didn't mm-hmm. care a lot for it. Yeah, maybe the Babylonians took some of their... Maybe some of those tablets that they found in Babylon were originally in the library and they took them back yeah, maybe they were you know uh, the uh, this uh, 19th century british uh, giant stealing campaign yeah <laughs> worked great so the british museum has 30,943 tablets but these are fragments yeah and despite 
150 years having passed. They haven't finished uh, cataloging all of this. It's yeah. very hard to tell which parts belong together and stuff like that. So they, they believe they have 10,000 texts in the British Museum. And probably a ton of them are super actually boring, believe it or not, after a while, where it's like, you know, we sent a sheep to, you know, Joe Smith. Obviously, his name wasn't Joe Smith. Joe Smith, 10 sheep, you know, or just... Um, yeah, and probably very redundant. Redundant. Like, yeah, that it's the same text on a lot of places, like laws and stuff. Exactly. I mean, they're interesting to go through at, at some point, but... Um, then you know, of course, then you find these amazing tablets while they're tra- while they were doing it. So yeah, they've been translating these all along. Like, so it's funny when you you know how you say like they're where they you know they were taking all these treasures out of the Middle East or out of the Near East and stuff. But these these they yes. like when they were taking them out, the this was part of the Ottoman Empire. The the guards and stuff were like laughing at them because they're taking they're literally like boxes of stone like rocks, you know. <laughs> yes. It's like, what are you going to do with that? Because they, they were worried about them taking statues and things like, you know, nice things like that. And they're like, no, we're taking these bo- the rocks. What? They're laughing at them. No, you can have the rocks. Yeah, take we'll these take rocks. the gold. And then, you know, now there's still, there's literally, could you imagine the puzzle this is? Right? I mean, it's like the ultimate puzzle. It's a box. Of, you have all these rocks and with little marks on them. And they have to, they put them together. They've been, they're still putting them together. I, I bet it's a lot. It's a lot of work. Huh. But imagine a world where we did not find the library. <sighs> well, we wouldn't have all this. I mean, you no, right? This podcast would have been much shorter. We would have been in, <laughs> in the 300s by this. It's so true. I know. What if they find another? If they find another library somewhere, like in like you know, like the Phoenicians or something, we could start all over again. Wow, <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> I'll never have to leave the 600s BC. <laughs> it is uh it is it if if they didn't find it we you're right we wouldn't have all that stuff i mean all the stuff that when i'm um you know when i do the research and i'll say it's and i'll talk about this in a little bit here too like you know oh i got this from the rassam cylinder and i got this from you know uh, sennacherib's annals and yada 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 well these are the things that they found they weren't there and you know you read them they're amazing or or like the Ezerhaddon Treaty. I mean, maybe that was found other places, but, you know, there was these guys that found this stuff and translated it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's uh, go through. This was the basic overview of the library. Yeah. Now, let's go deeper into the content. Yes. So, oh, yeah, the contents is amazing. Like, like we said, a ton of the things are smashed, smashed, right? So you can't really, um, so they couldn't really um, just say, well, look at this, we found this. So they were going through this for years and years and years. So Laird found this, finds the stuff. 
in the late 1840s. He went once, and like I said, he found Sennacherib's thing, and then then they went back, and that's a cool story. So they go back. So Laird really, and it's so funny because Rassam doesn't get a lot of credit, you know, until you take a deeper dive. So Laird goes back, and Rassam is in, so I'm sorry, let me, so Rassam is an Iraqi. He's an Assyrian, basically. His mother was Syrian. His father was Iraqi. He's from Mosul, and that's where Nineveh um, was, where they were excavating. So he met oh, Laird. he's a local boy. He's a local boy, exactly. He, his brother was sort of a local official. And he met Rassam, and he was about 20 years old, and he, Rass, I'm sorry, he met Laird, and Laird um, hired him as his paymaster. So after, the, you know, he became, um, they became close, and he was very smart, and he also had, he was a local boy, like I said, so he could, he could get things done. You know, he could hire people. He, he was very good. So anyway, he goes back, and the second time, in the later 1840s, so first they had dug it up, and then he went back, and there was this whole um, tension with the French. The French also had rights to dig in this area. This is kind of like a, it was an imperial, uh, sort of a sparring match. They weren't actually fighting, but it was for prestige. So anyway, Rassam sort of... It's, li it's like the space race. Correct, for, exactly. For old relics. Exactly. So it's funny, because even they had the... Uh, the French found... The Rosetta Stone, but the British got it, and it's in the British Museum. So that's the Rosetta Stone from Egypt. Sorry, where they, you know, they were. It was that was written in Greek. It was written in the the Demotic script that we've talked about and hieroglyphics. So that's how they translated hieroglyphics. So yeah, and there there was a similar thing in the cuneiform. So anyway, when Rassam goes the second time, he tricks the French guy. He's and he digs in moonlight. And while he's digging, um, he has he kind of has a feeling. He goes, "I think I knew where this would be." And while he's digging, one of the uh, second or third night, a fifteen foot area just collapses, huge, right? And he's that's when he finds the library. I have the chills <laughs> literally thinking of this. All the wow. he could see first, he sees the like a relief because they've seen reliefs before. He starts to see one of Ashurbanipal's reliefs, and then when they hit a boom, the whole thing you could see the whole relief and that's where when he found ashurbanipal's library where all those tablets were i mean they say they got mixed with sennacheribs but you know they knew this was a library for sure amazing amazing so um so yeah then and 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 then it took them you know years to translate all this stuff just like you said put they're still putting it together and as they're putting it together and learning how to translate it That's a cool story too. Could I tell that? Yes. Go ahead. So there's this other. These are like all these like classic British Victorian guys. You know, you know the guy at Monty Python. I always use Monty Python. The guy from the Meaning of Life who like loses his leg to a tiger. Was, <laughs> uh, don't remember. He's just laying in there. And he's like, "Sir, what's wrong with your leg? Uh, oh, I think I've lost my leg. It might have been. Uh, I think it was a tiger." Like, could you go out and find my leg, boys? Like, very calm. So this, so these are these kind of guys. We're like the 1820s, 1830s, you know, 1840s. So they were learning cuneiform before this was discovered. So this was, you know, in the 20s and 30s, they were translating cuneiform. So this guy, Henry, Sir Henry Rawlinson, he's, one of, he's the guy who would, like, lose his leg from a tiger and say, oh, I lost my leg. So, like, even his, he's a, His son was a, became a general in World War One, and, and he's the one who broke through the Hindenburg line. So it's a prestigious family. So he, in addition to being a diplomat and a parliament and a soldier, while he was a soldier overseas in the you know Ottoman Empire in that area, he started learning cuneiform and Persian. So there's this. It's sort of like the Rosetta Stone of cuneiform. There's this huge monumental inscription from Darius the Great and it's you know on a sheer cliff and you can't re you know they don't have cameras and it's up high and you know they could just see it's cuneiform but it's also was written in um, Persian and so he could kind of it was sort of like a Rosetta Stone so he climbs up this thing so precariously and copies it with a pencil and then he tries to get to another part and he almost killed dies 
So then he hires a local boy, you know, like a, what they do, the British would do, right? Just like, oh, get some native. So this kid climbs up the thing so precariously and just makes a, a pencil scratching of it. You know, this took years. And then f- over the years, he translates to cuneiform and writes some books. And so people start learning it. And then just lay people learned it. And that's how they had people um, help translate it. The British Museum would let people come in a couple of days a week to that would like... <sighs> just learned cuneiform to want to translate it, which I wonder if any, you think people would do that today? I mean, I guess we have sort of. Well, there is a lot of people who know cuneiform today, but I think it is extremely hard to learn. Oh, yeah, I guess. I mean, do you think somebody, I mean, just the fact of just lay people just saying, oh, I'm going to learn another language and translate that, I guess. I don't know. Kind of like this. I, I think they're all uh, professionals. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, there was like priests who could who would learn it. So there's one guy who's an amazing character, too. His name is George Smith. He's the one who found Gilgamesh. And he taught himself cuneiform from learning all this and languages. And he was like 20 years old when he started to go to the library. And, and they realized, hey, this guy knows it. And then... One day, he's finding all this cool stuff, you know? Wow. Like, oh, for example, let me tell you for example. But this is kind of stuff people could do when they didn't have Netflix. Exactly. That was my point. I said, do you think people would do this today? <laughs> no, they would be too busy on something. That is right. Netflix. If there was something, like we might find like an alien planet, and they're like, ah, oh, I'll watch the movie instead. I'll wait for the Netflix yeah, do- documentary. Yeah, I'll Netflix do it. But he he found, for example, his first important discovery was the date of the payment of the tribute of Jehu, king of Israel, to Shalmaneser III. Wow. Right? So that's why he started. They were very religious. You know, they were very um, pious Christians. And so they were looking for stuff that, you know, triangulated with the Bible. Oh, there's another very important thing he found. He found that there was an eclipse on the 15th of June, 1760, I'm sorry, 763 BC, on the 15th of June, there was an eclipse that had been known through astronomy, but then they found it on a tablet. So that is the like the keystone that is used to date things from the ancient Near East. That particular thing that he found in those tablets by, you know, saying that there was an eclipse, that they said that this was this date. You know, probably said, you know, the date, the time to pick onions. You know how we always find those things. Yes. And, you know, this, and the year of this, that, because it didn't say. It was 15763. It said something that they were able that were able to use. But that's in a specific date. So by going, because something will be 10 years later than that, et cetera. So that's super important. And he also found um, the date of an invasion of Babylonia by the Elamites in 2280 B.C., So those are just some of the cool things to nerds like us that we found. But that main thing he found was the flood. So he first, he finds the flood tablet. So it was like, there was a boat, there was a, it was a storm, there was animals on the boat, there was, um, the boat landed on a mountain, he sent out a bird. It was just like Noah. So he got so, they said he got so excited when he found it, he started undressing. We don't know if he like took all his clothes off and like Eureka or just unbuttoned his shirt, but he said he just like completely lost it and just started undressing. And there he finds the Epic of Gilgamesh, the flood tablet. And then from there he found the rest of them. Wow. So, yeah. And then, okay, like I still get excited about this George Smith story. So there was a piece missing. Eventually, and then we could talk about that after. Eventually he goes back to where he talks the museum into letting him go back to Iraq and he finds the piece that was missing like 20 years later he goes back to where where um Rassam had dug and he just a week in a, within a week he finds it that's uh, sheer luck i know but the thing is he knew what it was he was looking for wow you know he kind of knew with a he knew the cuneiform he knew the shape Very you should mention that the the excavations themselves took 80 years yeah Yeah. Which is a long time. And they probably, if they started, if they found that today, they'd probably only be like a tenth through it, don't you think? The way they so much more carefully dig now. Yeah, and that would probably be very good for for it. <laughs> of course. We might not have had all this information by now. 
but there, there is a, a, a Swedish uh, archaeology site from the end of from the migration period like 400 500 uh, AD mm-hmm. where uh, they have discovered it's the site of a mass murder it's the site of a massacre oh. and i do make a swedish podcast about mass murder so i'm very interested in that i could com- and ca- i can combine true crime and history that's two things i love but the excavation has been going on for 11 years and they have excavated 11%. Exactly. So they are doing 1% a year. <laughs> That's so how big I have to it. wait 89 years before <laughs> I can podcast work. Hey, how about we could have a we could have a one of your um we could have your murder podcast and your fan history podcast. We can go visit that dig. We'll have a little trip. Yes. Yeah. Uh, actually there might be uh, episodes for my mass murder podcast that I'll translate to English because they are historical mass murders. Oh, I'll definitely like to listen to that. And, and if you do that, that would be like a Rosetta Stone of the future. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we did. <laughs> we did find, uh, we have like an episode that is, it's about a mass murder in Stockholm in 1392. And it was so hard to find all the information that we now have the prime academic text in that episode for that mass murder, which is quite stunning. Nobody had studied it since, really, uh, and published a text about it since the 1850s. So, you know, that makes me think that I, I, I was wrong when I said, what would people do today? And so that's exactly what you did, right? Like, oh, yeah. just how but, George Smith decided to just, as a volunteer, decipher that, you, you actually contributed to history the same way as him. Oh, it was my uh, my uh, writer that did that. Well, but I encouraged him. Well, you're like layered. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because Rassam was, a, was an Iraqi. He didn't get a lot of credit over the years. I mean, the book I read really goes through it, and it's great. It's called uh, Buried Book. It's about Gilgamesh. They found, like we said before, they found boring things, but they found amazing things like the Epic of Gilgamesh. And how about, did you see where they had that dictionary of different types of tables that Irving Finkel talked about? Yeah, and they, how the line it was a per, so this tablet they wasn't that broken I don't think but you know it's like perfect lines drawn you know straight and then it would have on one side a description of a table different kinds of wood and then it written in other languages or just you know sort of a dictionary to describe it so there was all definitely kind of stuff like that in there but a lot of a lot of scholars think that that one of the major reasons that Ashurbanipal was going around looking for all this stuff is he was looking for secret information you know magical spells and things like that but they are so superstitious Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of astrological reports in the library as well yes they help and with some they're very um they were very cause and effect which is a natural thing for humans I always say that you know sort of cause and effect if this happened in the sky then this happened in the ground then that must mean that's what happens Yes. Same thing with, you know, sheep's livers and that kind of thing. They would have been terrible poker players because the cause and effect is the most, uh, like, common error in thinking in poker instead of doing the math. Ah. I used to be a poker pro. At one I point. can believe you would be. Poker players are almost as uh, superstitious as Assyrians. I believe baseball players, sports players. Yeah, superstition runs through a human race for sure. Imagine that you are uh, an archaeologist or a cuneiform n- knowledgeable person and you are you have this tablet in front of you and you want to find out what it's about and you start interpreting it and then you find out it's an astrological report. Right. It's like, no. All right, I know. Yeah, so Ir- Irving Finkel, you know, he could, and a lot of these other guys too, probably Karen Radner too, She's she reads cuneiform. They could start, could, they could start reading the handwriting. They can tell. That, you know, this is this scribe or this guy's got, you know, they could start telling the scribe's handwriting, which becomes in very handy where they could find a little piece of a rock, you know, and then they're like, oh, I know what this, I know exactly what tablet this goes to because it's this guy's handwriting. Wow. Right? They, they, uh, they also found a letter from Shamashuma Ukin to Ashurbanipal where he's annoyed at Ashurbanipal. And he references, do you remember when we were kids and you used to annoy me when we used to play that dice game? <laughs> That's just awesome. 
What's the saying about Rassam, though? Like the rat, when I'll say uh, we got this from the Rassam cylinder, they found that in there. So different, ra- or some of the other ones are called Rassam cylinders. So I think there's a couple Rassam cylinders. I'll have to clarify that on another episode. But a lot of times when I'll be, you know, the long, long King reports from Asher Banapal or uh, Sennacherib come from these big cylinders. And they're, I mean, they has all the information, everything we talk about, everything you find in Cambridge Ancient History, all that was found by these guys in that library. Wow. They, how about they found, this was amazing to me, there's only two little fragments, but they, on the back of the, of the tablets, they would write, this is the property of Asher Banapal's library and things like that. You know, don't take it or we'll flay you and kill you, that kind of stuff. And they had symbols for that. And sometimes they would forget to write it on there. And imagine what would happen to you if you were late returning a book to Ashurbanipal's <laughs> <Bonnie-Pulse> library. <laughs> I want to do a cartoon return it on time. <laughs> Hi, I'm returning this book and it's a little late. Uh, it's about a week late. What is my fee? Um, we're cut off your fingers. <laughs> oh. Two weeks, we would have killed your family. <laughs> those are the heads of the people who return books late here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Those are the heads of the people who turn books late. That's so funny. Um, that's a good point, though. Actually, it wasn't that kind of library. It wasn't like people could just go in there and, you know, only certain people were allowed in there for sure. The hell, secret text, you know. Of course. Yeah, so they so they would write on the back of the thing, and they had these symbols. And sometimes they wouldn't, they'd forget to do it before, when the tablet was dry. So they would have to scratch it in there. But they found these two tablets where they were too dry, and they couldn't scratch it in there at all. So this is amazing to me. They wrote notes on it in ink, in cuneiform. So like in ink, yeah, in ink. So that's weird. Like you would think, why you know cuneiform is made because it's got grooves. When you look at these tablets, we, you know, they look just like a bunch of bumps. You can't tell. But when you look at it, with the scholars who will use it to translate it, it, it's little, it's lines and arrows and stuff like that. It doesn't show the depth. You know, everybody really think that the scribes would actually ever use ink because it's a whole different thing, but apparently they did. They have these two tablets, and they use ink, but it's written in cuneiform, which is really cool. It just seems so much easier to use ink than to actually carve the stuff. Well, yeah, for sure. That's why, so so when you still, there's a, there's a famous picture they'll show, um, they're actually Assyrian war correspondents. They're at, you know, battle, because it's on, you know, war reliefs. And they're writing, and the one guy has a clay tablet, and a, and the other guy has a paper and a and a pen. So it's been assumed that the guy writing in paper and pen was writing in Aramaic. Irving Finkel on his talk on it, he says they're probably writing in cuneiform. So who's to say? But yeah, you're right. Why don't just write in ink instead of cuneiform on clay? Yeah. I guess to st- I guess you know that's your more permanent things today. I guess when you print something on a special type of paper, you put a seal on it, that kind of thing. That's true. They did the seal. So we put seals on things even today, right? I don't know if do you guys use seals in your country for legal documents or anything? Sometimes, yes. yeah. So we have that too. Like you'll have to put a seal on it. So they would have a, probably have a seal on the clay. They didn't have a, such a way to put it. I guess they didn't have the same way to put on paper. So yeah, there was. So they had all those financial things. They had legal tax, a lot of magical stuff. I wonder what the magical stuff. You wonder like, they always have all these spells, but they never seem to work. I don't know why they would. Like, if if they really work, why don't they just say like, you know, have this guy die instead of having to send an army go get him. <laughs> yes, but although they maybe worked against the king. Remember the the, the Cimmerian king Dugdami. We, we decided he was probably killed by magic. Doug. Yeah, King Doug for the Cimmerians. That's the one time magic worked. Yeah, that was the one time it worked. What good is a sword against sorcery? Nah, yes, isn't that what Conan said? Yes. Yeah. So I th- I get I do get the feeling like kind of the library thing was sort of like that that they were he was uh, Asher Banapa was looking for sorcery too. Well, we have some real. Uh, Boring stuff from Sargon, like 1,300 administrative texts and letters. 
<laughs> so Sargon less interested in magic and more interested in uh, keeping control. That was probably Sennacherib too, right? Probably. Yeah, because he was he was his right hand man. There's a lot of royal grants and decrees from all the kings down to Adad Nirari the third back in eight ten in BC. I'm pretty sure you know pretty much everything that we have, everything that we have on. Sennacher, all the annals and stuff all came out of these dig, all came out of these libraries, you know? Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things in the library is 1,600 letters. So they are communications sent between people, and that should be pretty interesting. But there's been a lot of finds of letters in, in the rest of the series as well. Yeah. From, from Sargon onwards, when the postal service worked. Yeah. And those letters are those are gold for historians when you find good ones and you know they really you know because when you read Asher Banapal, I'm the king of the world, I did this, I did that, you know, he you know he's he's making some stuff up. And when you find these letters, the king, you know, I request this or that, that's how you really triangulate a lot of these stories. I think I just found where I could read the letters, the Chicago, the Oriental Institute in Chicago has resources where you could read the Rassam cylinder and all these, and I, I get a lot of that, but the letters aren't there. But I think I recently found there's it's a ton of books, like, but I think I found it digitized. So I'm, I'm gonna start going through some of those letters and see if we find something cool in there, too. Please do. Oh, there was a letter. How about the letter from I believe it was it was um, it was one of the sisters, it was maybe like it was maybe like Asher Banapal's sister or Ezra Haddon's sister, and there's a letter. From her to her sister-in-law, saying about you know, make sure you practice your writing. Make I heard you're not practicing your writing. And then there's like I said that letter from Shama Suma Ukan to Asher Banapal talking about when they were kids, which I think is so amazing because you know how they eventually went to war and, ki- and tried to kill each other. You know you kind of think well they're brothers, but they, maybe they didn't really know each other. But apparently they did. Yeah, that's a good piece of information. Yeah, right? Like, I would think, well, I probably had 50 brothers. He didn't really know that kid. But he did. Yeah, Ashurbanipal was the annoying kid. Yeah, I guess so. He probably, you know what? You're right. Ashurbanipal probably was totally annoying. Yes, he was sitting there reading in a corner, and the other boys were like, oh, let's do sports. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, I don't want to. Yeah, he doesn't want to do it, and he's writing, but he's the guy who got you back. He's like Cartman. South Park? Yes. <laughs> I'll show them all. There, There is a letter from Asher Banapal when he was a boy to his father, Ezra Haddon, and saying, I'm practicing what, my what writing. What was that? I'm sorry. Actually, it says that he's practicing his writing. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Good for him. Yeah. So so there's... um, And so I wanted to talk a, just a second, too, about George Smith again. Because here's um, this was really interesting. So George Smith, he's the guy. He's sort of like a, a firefly, you know. He has a short. He he burned out quick. So he did all that. He finds the Epic of Gilgamesh in the rubble, in the museum, deciphers it, goes back to Iraq, finds it again. But he couldn't. He just was too British, and he would argue with the Ottoman people. You know, he would say, "Oh, I have the right to go here," and they would want a little bribe, and he would. He would, I am absolutely not going to give you a bribe, you know, that kind of thing. So they were like, fine, we'll take all your stuff. So they wouldn't get, you know, they wouldn't let him take it. And he had all these problems and he was, couldn't handle sleeping in, you know, lice infested rooms and things like that. And he didn't have the most strength. And so he was only there, you know, within a year and he died. He, he was young. He was maybe in his thirties and he had a wife and like six kids and he died in, you know, overseas in the Middle East, you know, on his that expedition to try to get those other tablets. He found that piece that he needed, um, but he died doing it. That's tragic. So Rassam goes back years later, and then he found all this more stuff. Wow. And Rassam, this guy had a life too. I mean, the stories. he They tapped him, right, to go. So in Abyssinia, which is like Ethiopia, the king was crazy. He was completely like a lunatic, insane. He would he would be your friend one day and then have you executed the next day. He captured all these British diplomats and people. So they send Rassam over to negotiate 
So he captured him. The king kept him. He was in prison for two years in Ethiopia until an army had to come and save them. I mean, it's a whole story. Yeah. So, and Rassam also, um, when he went back, he found the Cyrus Cylinder in Babylonia, in Babylon, which is the, yeah. I mean, that's another one. The Cyrus Cylinder is like a huge, you know, um, well-known cylinder in cuneiform from Babylon, from from Persia, from from Cyrus. So he found that. He found um, some stuff from Nabonidus. So he also went to Babylon, too. And he found a whole bunch of stuff like that. Amazing. I like to quote uh, Austin Henry Lyard himself about the significance of the library. So this is what he says, quote, We cannot overrate their value, speaking about the texts. They furnish us with materials for the complete decipherment of the cuneiform character, for restoring the language and history of Assyria, and for inquiring into the customs, sciences, and we may perhaps even add literature of its people. The documents that have thus been discovered at Nineveh probably exceed all that have been afforded by the monuments of Egypt. But years must elapse before the innumerable fragments can be put together, and the inscriptions transcribed for the use of those in England and elsewhere may engage in the study of the cuneiform character. But I I bet he didn't think that we would still be deciphering them. I bet not, no. And we still are. I I mean, I guess computers, you know, can't even still do it. I mean, I guess they do use some computers these days to help translate some of these languages. And, and that kind of thing. But I, I, did rehear, I remember Karen Radner said something like, if you want to learn cuneiform, it's not a bad job. And we need people to keep, you know, translating it. So maybe that's a job tip after the pandemic. Learn cuneiform. Yeah. Yeah. Could be, for all you young people out there. I'm definitely too old to learn it, I think. And I must be clear that uh, even though I sometimes speak badly about the the British uh, thieving campaign in the 19th century, I do love the British Museum. And what they have done is amazing. It really is amazing. I also enjoy Netflix, even if I talk badly about it sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't get that at first, but I I know know exactly what you mean. It really is a... It really is a a delicate subject, kind of, you know, like what if they didn't take it all and, and they said, well, this is just rubble and they just lost it all. So, you know, is this where the, the civilizations were at a different point at that time and the British just yes. did what they did. But yeah, like, even like you said about how they, you know, takes, they're only 11% through that now. In those days, they just went in like bulls in a china shop and just, you know, dug through, took as whatever they could. And they did smash and grab, like try to get statues and things like that. Yeah, one must always uh, be careful when uh, condemning the actions of people in the past because the, all the circumstances were so different. <laughs> that was very well said, Dan. Very well said. <laughs> okay, is that it for the library? I think so. I mean, you, we could, you know, there's. I'm sure I'll listen to this podcast and we'll. I'll say, ah, oh, we could have talked about that, but. And then I will if I bring it up. But you, and for the listeners, if you, um, I'll put, I'll post the link to the book I talked about, the buried book, because it is a really good book. I, I tell you, I picked it up at the library on Friday, and I was done with it by Monday. It was it, all the things that we talk about on the podcast about Assyria come from mostly from these digs, you know, that these guys found. Um, and then we are going to do the Epic of Gilgamesh. We're going to have a special episode on that. That's why we didn't really dig into that here. We'll definitely talk about that in another episode. And yeah, I mean that... There's also um, me reading the first tablets of the Epic of Gilgamesh on the Fano History YouTube channel. Oh. <laughs> I really got into that one Christmas. Did, did you do the whole... You did the one, the first tablet, you say? I think I did uh, like four or five. Oh, tablets. all right. Because I'm gonna, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna listen to them so that I could. As I just read the Epic of Gilgamesh, but I'm going to, li- you know, listen to it again. I'll listen to you do it. I think the listeners should go look for that. We will continue with the six thirties, but before we do that, we'll talk about what life was like in the Assyrian Empire, yeah. because it is. From all these letters, 
and Detus. There's a lot of mystery remaining about the Assyrians, but this period is the period we know the best. So we'll get into details about what it was like to be a citizen in the Assyrian Empire and what your daily life was like. Yeah. Because we've been talking about only the kings and the big campaigns and religion and stuff, but people lived their whole lives in the empire. And what was that like? Right. We'll get into that. Yeah, we definitely And then know. we'll get into the 630s and we'll see Ashurbanipal's mysterious fate. Very Because mis- they don't even know which year he died. No. We don't. But yeah, that is going to be good. And, and because of the because of the format of the podcast, we really couldn't get into the you know life of the Assyrians. You know, every ten years, it's not like we could it changed that much. So yeah, that's going to be a nice a good podcast too. Even if the Assyrians were more inventive than a lot of other peoples, they were very conservative. So we can imagine that life was fairly similar in the eighth century to the seventh century. Absolutely, uh, definitely, you're dead on. I really, I, I, I never knew much about the Assyrians until I started co-hosting this with you, and I, they're so amazing. I could almost become like Irving Fingal and just become an Assyriologist, <laughs> uh, amateur one, obviously. Yes, and then we'll proceed towards the destruction of the empire in six twelve. Mm-hmm. Sad. Which is not a very hard date, actually. It's the fall of Nineveh, but the empire and the idea of it survives. That is true. And actually, Elam survives. Right. Somehow for longer than the Assyrian Empire. It does. Uh, it's just, um, I, I, sorry, I got like um, my mind just, it's such a story, you know. When, when I went to school for history, we didn't really talk about the Assyrians. And this is just such a, the whole thing, you know. I mean, it's just such a basis of. Our civilization today still from what started from the Assyrians, even though they were violent. It was a violent time. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Also, Urartu will survive the destruction. That would piss off Asher Nasipal and Shalmaneser. Yeah. Oh, you know what we're also going to, it's funny, we're also going to be doing? I'm, I'm going to have, I'm gonna have a, a, a joint podcast with Sai from History with Sai. Cool. And we're going to talk about the initial beginning of the Assyrian Empire, because that's before the scope of the original podcast. Oh, like the uh, like the first yep. and the middle of the Assyrian Empire? This is just the oh, very great. beginning, just like how did this Assyrian Empire get started? Wow. So that's going to be interesting. Sargon would say that it started with Sargon the Great, but he's probably wrong. Sargon the Great from Babylonia? Or Akkadian? Oh, Akkad. Oh, of Akkad. Yeah. Yeah, he's probably wrong. I don't think he's right. No. So, yeah. Oh, wow. So, a lot of th- great things coming up on the podcast. Yeah. So, subscribe to our podcast. If you're not already, get on the Facebook page. Send me a message, anything you want to talk about. We've, we, we've been getting some fans involved. We have a new fan that we're gonna, I'm going to be doing that podcast with. So That would be great. Uh, a real Assyrian. Yeah, a real Assyrian. How about that? That's just from Sweden. Yeah. It's a great world. Also, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider sponsoring us on Patreon. That's how we survive. Please. And how we have survived for so long. Yes. So, patreon.com, search for fan of history. If you're a Swedish listener, you can also swish a donation to the podcast. But uh, send us a message on Facebook and you'll get the swish number. Swish, huh? Is that like um, Venmo? I don't know what Venmo oh, is. Oh, well, there you go. I'm sure it's similar. <laughs> it's a sort of payment service on your mobile phone. That's what Venmo is. Yeah. Cool. It's good. All right. So Swish or Ven- or Swish, Dan some money or go on to Patreon. And definitely like our Facebook page. Send me messages so I know you guys are out there. And we're going to be coming up with a lot of cool stuff. Yeah. Thank you very much, Bernie. Thank you, Dan. And thank you to your researcher, who was... Caitlin. Good work, Caitlin. Thanks, Caitlin. See you guys soon. Cheers. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.